Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 will be the psalm that we are in this morning. We continue to make our way through the first book of the book of Psalms and endeavor to see Christ in all of them. We come this morning to Psalm 16, a glorious psalm where the words of Christ are uttered through the prophet David. We will begin, as we do every morning, by reading together the whole psalm, Psalm 16, verse 1 down to verse 11. Beginning in verse 1, we read David writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, long ago You inspired through the Spirit the words of Your holy prophets to speak all Your words exactly as You wanted them. And here, in the words of David, the King in whom and with whom You entered into a covenant and made promises that one from his offspring would rule over the nations and that His rule would be forever and ever. 
who this very king and prophet, you spoke. And you spoke the words that would be fulfilled in your Son. You promised through these very words that you would not let your Holy One see corruption. That the grave would have no authority over Christ. And Lord, in Your grace and Your steadfast love, we rejoice because You fulfilled those words in raising Christ from the dead. This single work has changed everything. And it has given us a great and secure hope because the same promise is extended to us who are believers in Christ. That the grave will not ultimately have victory over us. But that because of the work of Christ and His power, we too will be raised from the dead. And in this we rejoice. We look to Him as our greatest hope and our Savior. And so this morning, Lord, as we hear the words of Christ from this psalm, I pray that we would both look to Him and see Him for who He is, for all His beauty. Show us more of Christ in this prayer, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, last week as we looked at Psalm 15, we saw there that the answer to David's initial question in verse 1, who shall sojourn in the tent of the Lord, that question is ultimately answered by pointing to Christ, by painting a portrait of Christ. Psalm 15, we saw, was a portrait of the righteous King who is full of truth in Himself, who is the one who upholds the righteousness of the law of God and who we saw will endure forever. And we saw also that one of the reasons that we should understand this psalm, Psalm 15, as being about Christ is because of the many connections that are made between Psalm 15 and then our psalm, Psalm 16. Both of the psalms describe a man who is full of truth within himself. It's natural to him. It's not something that's that's imputed to him. It's not something that he has to be transformed into. It, it derives from his very person. He is truth in himself. Both of these psalms describe a man who loves the people of God and who has a righteous indignation against the wicked. And both of the Psalms describe a man who will never be shaken, never be moved. He will endure forever. And we looked also at Acts chapter 2 when 
Peter quoted this very psalm, and he explicitly argued there that when David was speaking here in Psalm 16 in the first person, he was not ultimately speaking about himself, but he was speaking prophetically about Christ. We see the prophets do this, right, all throughout the Old Testament. They may be speaking in the first person, you know, I am saying this, or I am going to do this, but they're speaking as the Lord. It's the Lord communicating to His people through the prophets and saying, this is what's coming. This is what I'm bringing into the world and upon the world. And so also is it the case here for David. It's what Peter points out to us. He's speaking in the first person, but he's speaking prophetically the words of Christ. And similarly, in Acts chapter 13, the passage that we read a moment ago, the Apostle Paul makes the very same argument. He quotes Psalm 16 verse 10, which says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And he reasons... In the same way that Peter had reasoned, he said, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David died. He saw that corruption. He's buried. We can go to his tomb. We can see where he was buried. But he whom God raised up he says, did not see corruption. The New Testament is very clear in stating that this psalm, Psalm 16, is fulfilled in Christ. And so whereas Psalm 15 is a psalm that is about Christ, that paints a picture of Christ, Psalm 16 is a psalm where we hear Christ Himself speaking in the first person through the prophet David. We are hearing here in the psalm a prayer of Christ. I don't know if you're like this. I'm certainly like this. But there are, there are times throughout the Gospels, of course, where we're told that Jesus would leave His disciples and He would go away somewhere, maybe on a mountain somewhere, and He would pray. And I always want to know, what was He saying? What was His prayer? You, know, you want to be a fly on the wall to hear those very prayers. I'm going to learn how to grow as a, as a man of prayer myself. I want to know how I can pray as well. And so I'm curious. Well, this morning we're looking at a, a prayer. <laughs> a prayer from the words of Christ Himself coming through the prophet David. You want to see how Christ prayed? This is one of His prayers. We get insight into the kinds of things that He was thinking about the kinds of things he was hoping in. And if you want to know what someone is really like, of course, the best way to see 
is how they are when they are alone with God in prayer. That's what John Owen said a a long time ago. You you get to see the, the true character of a person when they are alone with God in prayer. And that's what we get to see this morning. And I want to point out to you some of the things that we see about Christ here through this prayer. He's alone with God. And so, what is He like? What does He love? What are the things that He hates? What are the things that He hopes in? And as we look at this psalm, I want to simply this morning just to behold Him. To gaze upon His glory. This morning, I don't want us to be thinking primarily about what are the things that we can do in our lives, how we can, how we can live the Christian life better. No, I want us to get to the foundation and just see Christ as we work through this particular psalm. And there are six aspects of the person of Christ that I want to bring out for you this morning from Psalm 16. And the first concerns the greatest good of Christ. The greatest good of Christ. What does Christ Himself consider to be His greatest good? And we see it in verses 1 and 2. He lifts up here His prayer to God and He says, Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. Or to put it more literally, my good is not apart from You. It is not beside You. I have no good that is over You. In other words, the Lord, the Lord Himself is the greatest good of Christ. Everything that Christ considers to be good to Him is good only insofar as it comes from the Lord. The Lord is the origin of all of His good. He is the spring from which the fountain flows. The waters are no doubt refreshing. They are good, but they are good only because they come from God Himself. Everything that Christ does, everything that He loves and delights in, as we will see in just a moment, even His love for the saints is something He delights in because He loves His Father first. God the Father is His greatest good. Jesus said, in the Gospels, in John chapter 14, verse 31, he said, There, I do as the Father has commanded me. And then he explains why. Why does he do all that the Father has commanded him? Why does he obey the Father? Is it because he's threatened by him? Is it because the Father is some tyrant that is forcing the Son to do all of these things He'd rather not do? Sometimes when the subject of the atonement of Christ comes up and Christ giving His life as a ransom for sinners, when this is brought up, it's often presented 
certainly in more unbelieving circles, as if there's this tension between the Father and the Son. The Father has this vindictive wrath that has to be appeased somehow, and the Son is just unwillingly giving Himself to appease the wrath of God. And there's like these conflicting desires between the Father and the Son. But that's not the case. The Father desires to save a people. He desires to give a people to the Son. And the Son likewise desires to save a people. He Himself is the offended party. And He Himself desires to save those who have offended Him. And He desires to receive that very people from the Father and lay His life down for them. There is no conflict between the Father and the Son. There's no disunity. The Son is not someone who has no choice in the matter and is just doing what He is told. No, Jesus goes on to explain why He obeys the commands of the Father. And He says, so that the world may know that I love My Father. The eternal Son eternally loves the eternal Father because He sees in Him all of His good. He loves Him. There is no flaw in God. There is no deficiency. He lacks no good thing. And so Christ has no good, conceives of no good apart from God. He is His greatest good. Second, we see also in this psalm the intense passions of Christ. The intense passions of Christ. And this concerns, when I'm using this language here of passions, I'm, I'm speaking specifically about how He relates to His people. He's passionate about them. And also, how He relates to those who are not His people. He's also passionate towards them, but in a different way. For His people, He loves them intensely. He says in verse 3, if you look with me there, He says, as for the saints in the land. These are holy ones. These are the people whom God has set apart for Himself. He says of the saints, they are the excellent ones in whom is all My delight. Just let that sink in for a moment. In whom is all My delight. Delight. Now, I, I think even Christians who understand the glorious doctrines of grace and have been truly saved by the Lord and know His grace, I think sometimes, many times, in fact, Christians still lapse into this mindset that they're just this kind of nuisance to God. 
They're this uh, secondary plan. They're just around because God's trying to show Himself gracious and they're just sort of this secondary means by which He does so. You look at your sin. You look at the many ways that you stumble and you think, you know, God is just tolerating me. There may be a day when by the grace of God I am glorified and I'm in His presence and then it makes sense that He could look at me and He could delight in me because I'm without sin. In that day, God will be truly pleased with me. But as I am now, surely I can be nothing more than a nuisance. He has saved me because He's merciful and and. You can be thankful for that. But you're always reminded. You remind yourself of how sinful you are. How much of a disappointment you are to the Lord. And you cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You may think of yourself like that at times. Christians struggle with that. You're truly grateful for God's grace, grateful for His forgiveness, but you can't imagine how God could look at you, a sinner, and be pleased. And yet, what do we see here in the psalm? What does Christ say of His people, of the ones God has made holy? In them is all my Delight. My delight. My great high desires. We know from Psalm 1 that the blessed man in that psalm delights in the law of the Lord. And and we can understand that. We can grasp that. The law of the Lord is good. It's righteous. It's beautiful. To delight in something like that makes sense. But the same word, friends, is used here also with respect to His saints. He delights in them. He delights in you, His people. This is why it was no act of drudgery at all on the part of Christ to give His life on behalf of His people. He did so willingly. He endures the suffering of the cross precisely because of love and as an act of His love towards His people. His love is so intensely passionate, so fierce that He is willing to lay aside even His glory to become a servant, to be humbled even to the point of death so that He might save His people from their sins and reconcile them to Himself. He is very much like a man whose love for his bride is so all-consuming and so powerful that even when she has sinned greatly against Him countless times, bringing shame to herself and shame to His name, 
He not only forgives her, but restores her, cleanses her, serves her, and makes her new. Perhaps some of you will remember when we went through the book of Hosea. And you have there this picture of Israel, God's covenant people, who are so saturated in their sin that they are likened to a bride who has given herself to be a prostitute. The kind of shame that a husband would have to endure if his wife was running off with all of these other men is incomprehensible. And yet, that's how God's covenant people were described. And what does God do? His love for them, for His promises made to them, is so zealous that He is determined to go after that wandering bride and take her again for Himself and make her clean and make her new. He restores her. That's what God does for us, His people. We have rebelled so greatly against Him, but His mercy and grace far supersedes the sins that we have committed. We often sing about that in various ways, in various songs. We sing that our sins are many, but His mercy is more. It is passionate and zealous for His people. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that He is the Good Shepherd. and that He lays down His life for the sheep. And He says no one takes His life from Him, but He lays it down of His own accord. And He does so because He delights in His sheep. He delights in His people. This is, this is a love that in many ways is hard to fathom. It's something that as we think about it in our own lives, we would probably, most of us, be unwilling to replicate it. If we were sinned against ourselves in such great ways, there's no forgiveness coming from me for these kinds of sins. And yet that's what God does. He pursues a sinful bride. Paul calls this love indeed the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There are not sufficient words to describe this kind of divine, eternal love rooted in the character of God before the foundations of the world. But it is that love and it is that delight that is poured out to you through Christ. For a holy God who has been rebelled against, blasphemed, rejected, to so passionately love His people that He will condescend among them and bear their transgressions in Himself through the person of Christ. This is a love that words cannot adequately explain. And yet, that is the heart of Christ for His people. They are His delight. 
So friends, I want you to take comfort this morning and be encouraged. When you trust in Christ, He will not despise you. There is no wrath. There is no cup of the wrath and judgment of God left to be poured out against you because He drank it all for the sake of delighting in you. He will not turn you away as too sinful or too corrupt. He will cleanse you and make you new. We also see in this psalm, as it continues, a warning. He has intense, passionate love and delight for His people. But for those who are not, there is a warning here. To those who would reject the Lord and to all who would remain in their sin and who refuse to come to Christ. With a similar passion, he has a holy hatred for the wicked. For those, he says, who run after other gods, who are idolaters, whose greatest good is not the Lord, he says their sorrows shall multiply. He will not partake in their offerings and He will not even take their names upon His lips. There is wrath and destruction that is reserved for the ungodly. Christ has no pleasure in them at all. He has no sympathy for their sorrows. His heart is not moved for them. I think that is, not, that is something that we, of course, do not often hear. Largely, it's often because the love of Christ for sinners that we see all throughout the Gospels is often presented in such a way that it overrides, cancels out any notions of judgment and wrath. But even in the Gospels, Jesus Himself pronounces woes and curses against people. Right? He certainly does. Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. A lot of people would hear those words today and they go, ah, Jesus, that's not loving. But it is truth-telling. He knows what's in them. He knows exactly what is in their heart. He knows that all of this Righteousness that they put on display is nothing more than an outward show. He sees their hearts and He condemns them for it. Likewise, He cursed Capernaum and He said that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus' love for sinners in no way ever contradicts 
His judgment against sinners. Particularly when we are speaking about those who will never turn to Him. Who will remain their whole lives in rebellion against God. All who run after other gods will never know the saving love of God because they are refusing to turn to Him and so be saved. We are, of course, not speaking here about the fact that all of us were at one time idolaters worthy of and under the condemnation of God. We are speaking here of the wicked who never turn from their wickedness. The only good that they will ever know from God is that which comes to all through common grace. They will know the goodness of God in that He sends the rains on both the just and the unjust. But they will never know. They will never taste His grace and mercy and saving love. The most they will ever have is the good that this sin-cursed world can offer. And it will be, in comparison to eternity, only for a moment. And so with a passionate zeal, Christ's divine anger is poured out against them. And so we see in this psalm, Christ is, is both, right? A lamb and a lion. He is the lamb who offers Himself as a sacrifice on behalf of His people. He is gentle. He is meek. But He's also the lion who can and will devour His enemies. Third, we also see here something of the priestly inheritance of Christ. The priestly inheritance of Christ. Under the Old Covenant law, the priests and the tribe of Levi, of course, had no inheritance of land. All the other tribes, right, they had allotted territories. They had specific lands that were designated for that tribe, for those clans that would remain in their families for, throughout the generations. The Levites, however, had no such inheritance. Say for about 48 small cities of refuge, they had no inheritance of land. But that didn't mean, of course, that they were without inheritance altogether. No, we, we read, especially in uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 18, we read that the Lord had told them that instead of land, He was giving Himself to them as their inheritance. They would have unique privileges to live and to work near to God. To work in His tabernacle and eventually His temple. They would minister to the people of Israel and tend to the temple. They would administer the sacrifices and would have God as their portion. Well, here in verses 5 and 6, Christ speaks as a priest 
who likewise receives the Lord as his priestly inheritance. He says, the Lord, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines, that is the the lines that would be used to mark out the boundaries of land. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Of course, that inheritance, as he says, is the Lord Himself. Christ as King inherits a people. Inherits the world. Psalm 2, ask of Me, I will give you the nations as your heritage. That is His kingly gift from the Lord. But Christ as priest inherits the Lord Himself. He is the great High Priest who is able to be in the presence of God forever. He had left the bosom of the Father in His incarnation and in His resurrection and ascension, He returns to the right hand of the Majesty on high. Now, as the prophet, king, and the priest of a greater covenant and a better priesthood. Fourth, we see also the wisdom of Christ. We see something of the wisdom of Christ. He says in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. We see here the wisdom of Christ coming in a sense from two different directions. One externally and one internally. Externally, he receives counsel directly from the Lord. He is counseled by his Father. In the Gospel of John, chapter 7, there's a moment in Jesus' ministry when he's in the temple during the Feast of Booths, and, and he begins teaching there. And when some of the Jews heard him teaching, they began marveling. They, they were astounded no doubt, by His command of Scripture. But they were most especially astounded because this was a man, in their eyes, who had never received any rabbinical training. And yet His command of the Word of God, the authority with which He was speaking, was far beyond any of that from the rabbis. They said, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied. He's never gone through one of the schools. He's not like Paul, who had trained under the Rabbi Gamaliel, a very famous and well-known teacher. So how does he speak in the way that he does and with the wisdom that he has? And he answered them and he said, My teaching is not mine, but it is from Him who sent me. The words that Christ speaks are the words that He receives from the Father. The deeds that He does are the deeds that He receives to do from the Father. In fact, He does nothing at all and He says nothing at all apart from what He receives 
from the Father. Which is why he says of himself to Philip, you'll remember when Philip requested, show us the Father. Let us see the Father, Jesus. He said to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, of course, he was not saying there that he and the Father, there's no distinction between the two. He's not, he's not claiming to be the Father himself. He's not identifying himself with the Father as if there's no distinctions between them at all. A lot of the times, you'll have different cults, different heretical groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who will go to a text like this and they'll try and argue like, you know, Jesus is, is not fully, well, excuse me, Jesus perhaps is um, the same as the Father, right? There'll be some Trinitarian departure that they have. And this is one of those texts where they often appeal to. But he's not saying that. He's not saying that he is the Father or that the Father is him. Because in the very next verse, he explains. He says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He uses the same language that we will use when we say that we are in Christ. That, of course, does not mean that we are Christ. There's a distinction that has to be made, but we are united to Him. And what He was saying is that His obedience to the Father is so perfect and so exact, and His wisdom is so complete that to see Him is to see the Father. Of course, another thing that the psalm says, if you look with me in Psalm 16 again, is that He has internal wisdom. It's in his soul. In his soul, his, he is wise. He says his heart, his, his inward parts instruct him at night. And this also is very similar to what Jesus says of himself in that same passage in John 7. He goes on in verses 17 to 18 of that chapter to say, if anyone's will is to do God's will, He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of Him who sent Him is true. And in Him, there is no falsehood. In Himself, Jesus says. In Me, Jesus says. There is no falsehood at all. Just as God, the Father, has no deficiencies in Himself, no impurities, no lies, so also does He have no deficiencies in Himself. He is full of grace and truth, John says. When His heart beats, there is no sin that is flowing throughout His veins as it does with us. If you are to cut Him when He bleeds, His blood is righteous, pure, holy blood. And therefore, when His blood was indeed spilled on the cross for the sake of sinners, it was righteous, pure, true, eternal blood offered 
on behalf of sinners. Fifth, we also see here the confidence of Christ. The confidence of Christ. Or another way to, to put this, we see His faith. We see the faith of Christ. Christ had faith. He trusted in His Father. He prayed to Him that He would preserve Him because He trusted that the Father would indeed preserve Him. And we see some of the other things that He trusted in the Father for in verses 8-10. to He trusted in the promise that as the offspring of David and the heir to the throne, He would endure forever. He says in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I will never be moved. We of course saw that in Psalm 15 as well. This, this statement that is tied to the promises of the Davidic covenant that the throne of Christ will never be moved. The King will never be defeated. The same thing is said further later in Psalm 21, verse 7, where it says there, For the King trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, He shall not be moved. Never be shaken. The promise is that Christ would be like a strong, impenetrable for fortress. You may have battering rams. You may have enemies that come against it. You may have arrows that are shot at it. You may have men who try to tear the fortress down, but it will never fall. Its foundations are sure. They are eternal. They are immovable. And Christ trusted in His Father that His throne and His kingdom would endure forever. It would have no end. Just as God promised in the Davidic covenant, Christ Himself would be the Davidic Son who reigns forever and ever. And friends, this, this same promise, this same kind of promise is extended even further to the righteous who are united to Him by faith. It's extended by Christ to His people. Psalm 112, verse 6 says similarly, for the righteous will never be moved. Those who are accounted righteous, those who are righteous in God's eyes, they will never be moved like Christ. And then Christ, of course, Himself promises that like an immovable, unconquerable building, a temple even, He will build His church. He will take His people from every side of the world and He will build a temple in which He and the Spirit and the Father will dwell and nothing will ever conquer it. The gates of hell even will war against it and will never prevail. 
The same promise, in other words, that's given to Christ as the eternal King is also given to His people, the church. The church, the body of Christ, like Christ, will never be moved. When everything you see in the world is telling you that the world is spinning out of control and the church is losing all of its influence, you need to remember these promises. The church doesn't lose. Christ doesn't lose. He has purposes to gather His people and He will do so. He has determined to save them, cleanse them, wash them, make them heirs to His kingdom. And that promise and that work will never be thwarted. So you may see darkness. You may see governments that are fading away. Seeming to have victory in the world. But there's only one who wins. And we know the end of the story. Christ reigns forever and His people will reign forever with Him. So he trusts that he will endure forever. He trusts also, and closely related to this, that even the power of death will have no victory over him. Look with me in verses 9 to 10. He says, again, closely related to this idea that he will never be moved, he says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol, of course, is the place of the dead. It is the location of the soul when it dies and the body is buried in the grave. And the corruption, of course, speaks to the decay of the body once dead. But Christ says that the Lord, the Father, would not allow the power of death and the grave to have authority over Him. He would conquer even death itself. And of course, Christ's trust in the Father was indeed vindicated three days after He laid His life down on the cross. Because as we read in the Gospels on the third day after He had given His life as a ransom on the cross, He rose from the dead, walked out of the tomb, never to die again. This was, of course, what the apostles themselves proclaimed about Christ. We read this in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse, uh, and chapter 13 as well. That in accordance with the Word of God in the Psalms, God raised Jesus from the dead, not allowing Him to see corruption. And now, because of this, because of this resurrection, in accordance with the promises of God, Paul says, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. We often think, 
as the, at the cross. The cross is the, 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 the primary message of the forgiveness of sins. And indeed it is. But if there was no resurrection, there is no cross that effectively atones for our sins because Christ remains in the grave and the power of sin and death continues to reign. But because Christ was raised from the dead, now we can proclaim, it can be said in all of its truth and glory, the forgiveness of sins is to be found in this man who's conquered sin and death. Grace is proclaimed in His name. The Gospel is announced. It is shouted from the rooftops and declared through the church everywhere. Salvation is to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. You go anywhere else, you try to find the forgiveness of sins anywhere else, you know who you're going to? Dead men. The only one who can give eternal life is the one who eternally lives now, forever and ever. And so we as the people of God proclaim that glorious message, bidding sinners to come, and when they come, they will be saved. Now, lastly, we see also the eternal state of Christ. The eternal state of Christ. Post-resurrection, where does Christ reside? At His ascension. Where did He go? Well, in accordance with the prophecies of Scripture, He ascended to be in the presence of God, His Father, forever. Verse 11 says, You make known to Me the path of life. In Your presence there is fullness of joy. At Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 110 likewise tells us that Christ was to be exalted at the right hand of God. And after His resurrection, when His disciples witnessed Him ascending the clouds of heaven, they saw Him ascend so that He would be seated at God's right hand in His presence forevermore. This is the position from which He reigns as the exalted Son of God and Son of Man now. But we also are told that in the same way that He ascended on the clouds of heaven to be at the right hand of God, so also will He return on the clouds of heaven. And when He returns in the fullness of His glory, bringing with Him His myriads of angels and saints, he will come bringing judgment on earth and relief for His saints. He will come to destroy every last particle of sin and corruption. He will come to lift the curse from the ground and to unite for all eternity heaven and earth together. And then, all we who have hoped in Him and who have loved His appearing will likewise enjoy 
the fullness of joy in the presence of God forever. And God will walk with man. And man will walk with God. Just as it was in the garden before the fall, so also will it be at the end, but even greater. There will never again be any sorrow, no sin, no death. All of it will be defeated once for all. And so in the same way, Christ trusted that His Father would preserve Him and that that trust was vindicated in His resurrection and ascension. We also, friends, are to trust in Him and we too will be vindicated in a resurrection at His return and will receive an eternal inheritance with Him. Let's go to the Lord and close with a word of prayer. Father, You have given us a great Christ. A great King. One who from long ago was foretold to have a throne that would endure forever. And from long ago would defeat even the corruption of the grave. And You have made good on those promises spoken through Your prophets many generations ago by raising Your beloved Son from the dead. And we are grateful this day, Lord, that we can look upon Him and see Him through Your Word and also hope in the same things He was trusting You to do for Him. That we can trust that in accordance with Your Word, we also who are united to Him by faith, will be raised from the dead never to die again and will reign with Him forever and ever. Thank You, God, for this hope that You've provided to us in Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen.